Hi, listeners. We have a very special treat for you. One of our best episodes of 2022. Enjoy Crimes of Passion, Tony Wakeford, today. And check back with us next week for an all-new episode of Deathbed Confessions. September 2006. In the Royal Surrey Hospital in England, Tony Wakeford is dying. At 70 years old, his frail body is withdrawing from its Parkinson's medication and shutting down fast. His wife, Patricia, sits at the side of his bed. Her hand is clasped tightly around his as she and a doctor talk in hushed voices. Slowly, Tony sits up with effort and rests his head against the pillow behind him. His chest wheezes with each breath, and his hand is sweating from Patricia's tight grasp. He tries to wiggle his fingers free, but he's too weak, and his limp hand remains still. The doctor leaves and Patricia turns to Tony. It will be okay, my love, she promises. Except Tony knows it won't. He's moments from death, and guilt is flooding his paralyzed body. As a religious man, Tony can't die without confessing. Who knows what horrors his afterlife will have in store if he remains silent. He has a terrible secret that's been eating away at him for 15 years. And with just a few minutes until his death, he knows he has to tell his wife. Patricia continues holding his hand, lovingly straightening his bedsheets and interrupting his thoughts to check he's comfortable. Her fussing irritates Tony. How can he confess when she's caring for him like this? He knows his words will break her heart. Using his last remaining strength, he clears his throat. Patricia, there's something I have to tell you. From there, he plunges head first into his confession. He tells his wife of almost 50 years that he was unfaithful during their marriage. But it wasn't just a meaningless fling. No, it was far worse than that. He had a drawn out, loving affair with his wife's closest and most trusted friend, Penny DeSalis. His confessions met with silence. Patricia smiles weakly in acceptance, pats his leg, and continues holding his hand. This reaction confuses Tony. He knows his wife well. She's loving and emotional to the point of being dramatic. He perhaps expected a fitful burst of tears to meet his confession. After all, the love of Patricia's life, the man she spent the last 20 years caring for, has been unfaithful. But her reaction is mild and accepting. Perhaps she thinks he's already received his karma. He is dying after all, and the past decade has been one of pain and discomfort as the disease has eaten away at his aging body. Exhausted by the effort of talking, Tony lies back. He breathes in deeply and prepares for death. Finally, he can die a guilt-free man and rest in peace. Any second now. But morning comes and doesn't bring news of Tony's death to Patricia. Instead, she wakes up to hear him breathing steadily and controlled, his heart rate strong. Somehow, his body is fighting death. The elderly couple look at each other in shock. If he survives, they'll both have to live with the painful knowledge of what he did. They'll be forced to uphold a marriage that's turned into a lie. 
It's a moment that will haunt the mind of Tony Wakeford for the rest of his life. His preemptive confession will sentence the couple to five long years of pain, anger, depression, and ultimately, murder. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Tony Wakeford, the heartbreaking words he spoke as he thought he was dying. It's about a dedicated wife who was betrayed by the two people closest to her, a failing marriage characterized by resentment, an illicit affair that would sentence a woman to years of depression. It's about the peace of a village shattered by an outburst of violence, a trusted confidant who deliberately betrayed her closest friend. And it's about a woman whose grief became overpowering and destructive. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. It's the summer of 1959 in Surrey, England. Patricia has just completed school, age 16, and dreams of training to become a teacher. She's generous and patient, someone who's often anxious to help others, so she's set her sights on teaching children with special needs. It's a career that will suit the young girl well. But Patricia also has her sights set on something else. She's desperate to fall in love. As a passionate girl, she believes in the fairy tale of love at first sight. She spends long summer days dreaming of Prince Charming's and perhaps imagining what her future husband will look like. With so much love to give, she's anxious to find a man. And after just a few weeks of summer, her Prince Charming arrives. Tony Wakeford is an attractive young man. At 24 years old, he's mature and sensible having already begun his career in the local government. But what intrigues Patricia is how quiet Tony is. He's often out by himself and, although polite when spoken to, is rarely keen for a conversation. Patricia's entranced by this as she craves to know what lies beneath his shy exterior. Could he be her Prince Charming? Slowly, the two embark on a teenage romance as Patricia falls head over heels in love and Tony quietly shows her the ways of the adult world. He's charmed by her naivete and enjoys watching from the sidelines as she absorbs the spotlight. And, although an odd match with their contrasting personalities, love seems to develop between the two. After just one year of dating, Tony and Patricia marry. Age 17, she's convinced this is her happily ever after. By 1961, after one year of marriage, Tony and Patricia move into a house together in Effingham, Surrey. But some early cracks are beginning to show. Patricia's affections are rarely returned by Tony, who's cold and distant towards his wife. He struggles to display much love towards her, and it isn't long before the young couple's honeymoon period stalls. 
The two often get into disagreements where Tony's voice is raised and Patricia's reduced to tears. The fights threaten to turn violent, but he's never hit her. Not yet. And as she lays awake at night, Patricia tells herself that this is what all marriages look like. Her optimism will get her nowhere. Although she'll continue to uphold the facade that she's in a loving marriage, the Wakeford's house will grow to become one of violence and resentment. The village of Effingham is small, sleepy, and picturesque. Its proximity to the vast Surrey Hills fills it with beautiful country life. And with a population of just over 2,000, it's a trusting town where everyone knows each other's business. Neighbors become best friends as they visit their local cafes and shops and send their children to the nearby schools. It's a scene that 20-year-old Patricia Wakeford throws herself into. Perhaps trying to distract from her troubled home life, she becomes a prominent member of society, joining the church choir and the Women's Institute. Her career as a special needs teacher is thriving, and being surrounded by young children every day has made her desperate to become a mother. She's sure that starting a family will bring her and her husband closer together. For a while, the distractions of village life seem to help their marriage somewhat. Although Tony is still quiet and far less vivacious than his young wife, he regularly accompanies her to church and occasionally supports her choir performances. They're by no means a close or affectionate couple, but they seem to be getting along. Their tolerance towards each other lasts another 15 years. Both individually do well. They keep the stable careers they've always wanted, share a beautiful house in a friendly village, and they even welcome two children into their lives, Robert and Sarah Lee. And although Tony is still cold in comparison to his wife's loving nature, he's a different man around his children. He's affectionate, thoughtful, and fun, always making time to play with them. The village of Effingham views the Wakefords as a model family. By 1975, Patricia has been part of Effingham Church Choir for almost 15 years. She loves singing with the people from the village. It gives her a chance to relax away from the house and make friends of her own. But there's one friend she's particularly close to. Penny DeSalis is a shy, pretty woman three years younger than Patricia. She also married as a teenager and moved to Effingham to support her husband. Patricia and Penny have been growing closer over the last few years, and they often spend weekends together walking over the beautiful Surrey Hills taking Robert and Sarah Lee to the park or gossiping over coffee in the village cafes. And Patricia entrusts Penny with the one thing she's never confessed to anyone. The fear that her marriage is failing. What Patricia hasn't yet discovered is that Penny, of all people, should not be trusted. One Sunday morning, as the two are walking over the Surrey Hills after church, Patricia opens up to Penny with a troubling concern. The problems in her marriage, she thinks, are causing her depression. Despite being a passionate person, she's always been rational. But lately, logic has escaped her and she's experienced dark suicidal thoughts. Her mind is troubled by ways to kill herself in an attempt to escape from the humiliation of a failed marriage. Immediately, Penny rushes to support her friend, flooding the conversation with possible advice. 
Does she want to talk to the doctor about how she's feeling? Perhaps she could try prescription tablets to help with the depression. Or maybe she should consider marriage counseling. The ideas calm Patricia. It's comforting to have a friend who cares so deeply. Maybe some antidepressants will help her rein her emotion in. But counseling, even though the idea appeals to her, she knows it's something Tony would never go for. The friends continue their walk, the tone subdued by Patricia's worrying state of mind. Then, Penny has an idea and suggests that she and her husband visit the Wakefords for dinner one night this week. She's only met Tony briefly and thinks it might help his bad moods if he's able to make some new friends. Touched by her thoughtfulness, Patricia agrees. The following Friday evening, Patricia and Tony prepare the house for their friend's arrival. They've sent their children to bed early so that they can enjoy the evening without any distractions. But when their guests arrive, the tension in the Wakeford's house is overpowering. It's clear that Tony isn't the socializing type. He's never quite grown out of the shyness he held when he and Patricia first met. However, as the evening progresses, the tension subsides and Tony warms into his role as a host. He takes a genuine interest in Penny and spends much of the evening chatting with her. Although Patricia perhaps wishes he'd show her this type of attention, she's happy to see her husband and best friend getting along so well. Penny's somehow able to make Tony laugh and smile in ways she hasn't before seen. Maybe, she optimistically hopes, these new friends will help reignite the spark she once shared with Tony. But blinded by her own love and faith in the sanctity of marriage, Patricia fails to see the connection that's really going on between her husband and friend. To commemorate the evening, Patricia takes out her new Polaroid camera. She's saved up months of her wages from teaching to capture precious family moments as her children grow up. Smiling to her friends, she asks if they'd mind her taking their picture. But to her surprise, Penny doesn't invite her own husband to have a picture taken and instead grabs Tony's hand. Nervously, he puts his hand around her waist and she leans on his shoulder. Patricia snaps the happy moment with her camera. It's a picture of her two favorite people, aside from her children, of course. Her beloved husband and trusted friend. But if Patricia had considered the picture more carefully, she'd have a glimpse into her own future. The two smiling friends, Tony and Penny, let her foolishly capture the physical evidence of what was to come within the next decade. It's now 1984, and the lives of the Wakefords have changed in many ways. Their children have grown into teenagers who are predictably rebellious and hard to control. The quiet village Effingham has been polluted with the noise of new homes being built, and cars driving through at all times of the day. The one thing that hasn't changed is the Wakefords' marriage. Patricia and Tony still struggle to get along with each other and try to avoid spending much time together. One night in the spring of 1984, the Effingham Police Department receives a call from a woman reporting a domestic fight in her neighbor's house. She's been hearing screams and yells crashing through her walls all night and is worried one of her neighbors will soon get seriously hurt. The fight, she tells police, is at the Wakeford's house. 
They make their way over and call a team of paramedics from the local hospital as a precaution. It's Patricia who answers the door. Although wearing pajamas, she's evidently made an effort to look presentable and acts calmly when talking to the police. But her eyes are red and watery and she's breathing heavily. Her and Tony have been arguing all evening. The police politely inform the Wakefords about the call they received and warn them to keep their voices down in the future. Patricia and Tony nod apologetically. It was just a little disagreement that got out of hand. They explain and assure the officers it won't happen again. But this is a promise they don't uphold. The two can't help but argue with each other. Their fights become physical and aggressive, and over the next few years, police are repeatedly called to the house with noise complaints from the neighbors. It seems as though the only happiness the Wakefords can share together is the friendship with Penny and her husband. Their dinner together in 1975 proved to be the start of a lifelong connection between the foursome. They spend their savings on joint holidays to Europe where the couples enjoy exploring foreign cities, eating new foods, traveling across exotic towns, staying in luxurious hotels. They're rarely happier than when together and Patricia and Tony can even hold off their marital problems when relaxing with their friends. Patricia feels comfortable when she's in Penny's company. She tells her best friend anything and everything, certain that she'll always provide a sympathetic shoulder to cry on. But what she doesn't know is that Penny's keeping a dark secret of her own. She and Tony are beginning what will be a passionate and destructive affair. During the mid-1980s, Tony's middle age is looking like the best time of his life. He has a senior position at work with promises of a large pension, his children are thriving at school, and the failure of his marriage is made up by his affair with Penny DeSalis. The two spend every moment they can with the other, stimulated by the electrifying thrill of keeping their love a secret. But meeting together can be hard in a town such as Effingham. It would take just one nosy neighbor to see the two together, and then their secret would be out. So they're careful, subtly touching each other when the four friends socialize, both excusing themselves to the bathroom at the same moment, sneaking into Tony's office after work. They don't have much time together, but when they do, it's thrilling and intoxicating. But although Tony's living on cloud nine, flattering his ego with a lover who's 15 years younger than him, Something in his body isn't quite right. His limbs feel stiff each time he gets up and he's easily thrown off balance. Sometimes when he's walking, it feels as though the slightest breeze could knock him over. And he finds, to his embarrassment, that he has trouble performing sexually. He'd write it off as early arthritis, but only if it wasn't for the memory loss he's been experiencing. He's had difficulty following his train of thought recently, and words fade out of his mind before he's had a chance to use them. It's making him frustrated and short-tempered. So, in the winter of 1984, Tony visits his doctor. It's not good news. Aged just 47 years old, Tony is suffering from early-onset Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is a degenerative disease that attacks the brain. It reduces dopamine levels in the body so that movement becomes slow and stiff until it's eventually prohibited altogether. Sufferers can also expect memory loss and difficulty with speech, with many developing dementia as a result of the disease. 
It's rare for someone this young to be diagnosed with Parkinson's. Only one in 10 sufferers are under 50. The good news, though, is that due to his youth, the disease's progression should be slow, and he can hope to lead a relatively normal life for the next 10 years. But in the 1980s, there's little treatment for Parkinson's. Pharmaceuticals have made a breakthrough with dopa therapy, a drug that stimulates the production of dopamine, but it's still in its infancy and doctors aren't yet aware of its success rate. In just one afternoon, Tony's euphoria has been shattered. That morning, he was seeing a younger woman and dreaming of their time ahead. But now, his future is chained to a wheelchair, unable to move himself as the disease gradually disables his entire body. It's devastating news. While Tony's been discovering the horrors of his diagnosis, Patricia's also been paying the doctor a visit. Her depression has worsened over the last few years. Although unaware of her husband's unfaithfulness, his consistent distance and lack of emotion has become unbearable. Through tears, she describes the depressing state of their marriage. The doctor nods sympathetically. He's known the Wakefords for years now and can see their marriage isn't one of happiness. He scribbles in his book, Marriage on the Rocks, Husband Shows No Warmth, Problems with Teenage Children, Very Little Contact with Husband. Patricia's prescribed antidepressants and recommended to see a marriage counselor with her husband. And maybe because she knows Tony will never agree to counseling, she becomes reliant on these individual sessions for her own therapy. Two days after his diagnosis, Tony calls his wife to their living room and breaks the news that he's been diagnosed with early onset Parkinson's disease. Patricia stares in horror, words failing her for once. Although their marriage isn't always happy, she still loves her husband and can't imagine anything worse than his being struck down by a disease. But surely if there's one person ready to care for Tony as he gets progressively worse, it's Patricia. She works with children suffering from disabilities every day and is well-equipped to care for her husband. But Tony's mind is perhaps not on his wife as he focuses instead on the other woman to whom he must break the news, Penny DeSalis. The clandestine lovers have been getting serious in their relationship. It's more than a flippant fling or midlife crisis now. But Tony knows that his diagnosis must signal the end in the affair. He can't sneak around like a love-induced schoolboy while his body's dying beneath him. It's perhaps this news that depresses Tony the most. Although their affair can continue for a few more years, the time will come when Parkinson's catches up with Tony. He'll soon be forced from the thrilling arms of Penny into the care and unwanted affections of his wife. By 1997, 13 years after his diagnosis with Parkinson's, Tony is struggling to live with the disease. The doctor was right that it would progress slowly at first, but he's now 60 and his body's slowing down. It's hard to heave himself up from bed in the morning, and he's even having difficulty with the most basic of movements. But worse than his declining mobility, is the damage the disease is doing to his brain. As a quiet man by nature, Tony's always been happy to sit and listen to conversations, joining in when he wanted to. But now he's forced out due to the degenerative nature of his disease. If he tries to offer opinions, words stutter out of his mouth, sometimes incoherently and jumbled in the wrong order. Even worse, his train of thought is occasionally replaced by a thick fog in his mind and he completely forgets what he was saying. 
Having the power of easy speech taken away has made him short-tempered and bitter. His language is now blunt, concise, and monosyllabic. With a memory lapses and speech impairment, Tony has no choice but to retire from his job. The once tall, imposing, capable figure of Tony Wakeford is now resigned to sit trapped in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. June, 1997. Patricia returns home from a long day of school, tired and bad-tempered. Being around children all week has made her miss her own, who've both moved out of the family home by now. As she approaches her kitchen, she hears a loud crashing of plates and pans falling to the floor. She drops her bag and rushes in to find her aged husband sitting limply in his wheelchair, surrounded by broken plates and glass. Her heart falls. Tony must have attempted to get a plate for himself, but his rigid muscles and unstable movement made the task impossible, causing the plates to smash around him. Hit by the realization that her husband can no longer look after himself, Patricia announces her retirement. She resolutely tells Tony that she's his wife before anything else and will leave her job to care for him full time. It's a selfless and generous offer from Patricia to give up all of her own ambitions for a marriage she knows isn't happy. She'll be burdened with managing his medications, washing his body, even feeding him. She'll become his around-the-clock carer. Maybe it's her final attempt to be the wife he's always wanted. But for two people who have always struggled spending time in each other's company, their forced union during Tony's illness isn't a success. If he feels gratitude for his wife's sacrifice, the disease prevents him from showing it, and Patricia is left feeling used and unappreciated. Tony will soon make it almost impossible for his wife to be around him any longer. After nine years of caring for him, Patricia will come close to giving up on her husband. It's September, 2006. Tony's disease has made him almost completely immobile and reliant on the care of his wife. Although his long-term memory is, for the most part, intact, his speech is jagged and short. The breakdown in his communication hasn't helped the Wakefords' already fraught marriage. Doctors and carers have predicted that Tony still has a few more years left to live. Despite his lack of mobility, the Parkinson's hasn't yet provoked further medical complications. But as Patricia walks into his room one morning, she's not so sure of their predictions. Tony's rigid in his bed, his body's burning with a fever, and his heart rate is rocketing. Unknown to Patricia, Tony accidentally skipped a day's medication yesterday, and his body's going into withdrawal as the Parkinson's takes over. A reaction like this can be fatal. Terrified, Patricia calls an ambulance. While being treated at the Royal Surrey Hospital, Tony's condition stabilizes somewhat, but doctors aren't hopeful of any sort of significant recovery. He's now 70 and has lived with Parkinson's for 23 years. He's done well to get this far, they tell Patricia. Days pass and Patricia waits anxiously in the hospital. Her children spend hours at their father's bed, having been told to say their goodbyes and Tony waits for death to take him. After just one week in hospital, Tony's situation is worsening, and he's not expected to make it through the night. A doctor leaves his room, and Patricia thanks him for his care. 
She sits at her husband's bedside, determined to hold his hand as he passes from this world to the next. She talks softly to him of trivial topics as she tries to make his last few hours as comfortable as possible. Patricia, there's something I have to tell you. Tony's head is propped up on a pillow and his eyes are burning with determination. She gently shushes him and tells him to relax. But he has to confess about Penny to Salas. He can't die with such a cruel secret crushing his chest. And so he admits it all. He tells her how he and Penny fell in love in the early 80s and saw each other until about 10 years ago. Their relationship was lengthy and full of love, he informs her. Although he apologizes that it was with her best friend, he defends himself by explaining that neither of them could help it. The four friends spent so much time together it was surely bound to happen at some point. Now it's Patricia who can't breathe. The news has strangled her and she can't find the words to say. She looks at his face, strained with the effort of talking. Then, down at his rigid body, lying so still as machines pump drugs into it. He's dying, she tells herself, and perhaps determined that their last words shouldn't be ones of anger. She smiles weakly and pats his leg. Tony shuts his eyes and takes a long breath, preparing for death. It's okay now, he thinks to himself. He's told her. He's finally got a clear conscience. The small hospital room is filled with the constant sound of pulses coming from Tony's heart machine. They've been getting slower and more irregular for the last few minutes. As Patricia sees Tony close his eyes, she prepares herself for the long, single note that will signify her husband's death. The beats continue to slow and Patricia drops off into a restless sleep. But when morning comes, Tony's heart rate monitor isn't flatlining. Instead, the beats are getting faster. They rise in pace and become more regular as Tony's heart strengthens. His frail body's finally reacting to the drugs doctors have been pumping him with all week. As his dopamine levels increase, the disease loosens its grip on his chest, lungs, and heart. Against all odds, he's surviving. But it can't be true. He's already uttered his final words. Patricia heard them just hours ago. Tony opens his eyes as a doctor rushes in, and the elderly couple hold eye contact for a moment. This is all wrong. They both know it. He should not have confessed to the affair. Over the next few years, Tony's tortured mind will play this moment over and over again. He'll come to consider his confession to be the greatest mistake he ever made in his life. It's the one that will ultimately get him killed. Two years pass after Tony's release from hospital. His marriage to Patricia is over in all but name. For the first time in 50 years, neither of them are trying to make it work. The disease has reduced Tony to a shadow of the man he once was. His body is immobile and fixed in his chair. His tremor is hard to control, and his speech is becoming less clear. Although Patricia tries to care for him as best she can, 
Each time she touches his body, she's reminded that her best friend's hands were once all over him. After hearing the news, Patricia stopped speaking to Penny DeSalis. How could she bear to look at the woman who'd betrayed every ounce of trust she'd placed in her? So both Wakefords fall into decline. The disease eats away at Tony's body, an obsession with his affair consumes his wife. July 2010. There's an unlikely mood of happiness in the Wakeford house today. Tony's enjoying listening to the radio outside in the sun, and Patricia's cooking a variety of dishes in the kitchen as they await the arrival of their daughter, Sarah Lee. Both children have been told about the affair. They can see the damage it's done to their mother, whose once loving, caring persona has transformed into anger and sadness. They don't entirely blame their father, though. They remember the unhappiness of their parents' marriage, having both grown up in a house that was haunted by yelling, screaming tantrums. But the mood is bright and cheerful when Sarah Lee arrives. They make small talk about her job and children, what her brother's been up to, and the latest gossip from the village. It's a pleasant afternoon. Then, as Sarah Lee follows her mother into the kitchen to clear the table, she watches her slump to the floor and start sobbing. Patricia wails and shouts, kicking the bottom of the table with her feet and punching the floor. These fits of sadness and anger have become common to Patricia since discovering her husband's adultery. Doctors have diagnosed her with reactive depression disorder, an explosive form of depression triggered by a certain event. In Patricia's case, news of the affair. Patricia marches outside to her husband and yells, Why did you do it? Why her? Tony's been asked this question innumerable times by his wife, and now he snaps. He bluntly tells her to shut up and leave him alone. Sarah Lee rushes to her mother's defense, hugging her close and stroking her hair. She reassures her that it's the disease talking, not Tony. September 3rd, 2010. It's 7.30 p.m. and Patricia's cutting vegetables for her and Tony's dinner. She's enjoying singing along to the radio as she works. But then she feels her heart rate rise as the next song plays. It's a song she watched Tony and Penny dance to on one of their holidays. At the time, she thought nothing of it, of course. But now that she knows the passion that fueled their dance, anger floods her veins. Why did you do it? She cries out from the kitchen. Why, Tony? His silence annoys her. She knows he can hear. She marches into his bedroom, knife still in hand, and demands the same question. He shouts at her to shut up and twists his body around to face her. She bends down to his level and the two stare at each other, hatred in their eyes and vengeance seething their veins as their faces move within millimeters of each other. They're both breathing heavily, waiting for the other to make the next move. Then he yells at her to go away ringing her ears with the unnecessary volume of his voice and stinging her face with his saliva. Tony takes advantage of her proximity to him and his frail hands slowly grip around hers, trapping her in his control. But his hold is weak and she tears away in fury. I hate you, I hate you, she screams in reply. 
the two are determined in their hatred for one another now. And as Patricia lunges forward with her knife, warning him never to touch her again, he uses all his strength to raise a rigid hand. It's uncertain whether this is meant to attack Patricia or defend himself, but Patricia's convinced it's the former. So, unaware of what her hands are doing and fueled only by the primal instinct to defend herself, she's stabbing him with her knife, over and over again. His paralyzed body has no choice but to sit there, taking each wound as the blood pours out. If he screams, Patricia doesn't hear it. Finally, out of breath and exhausted, she collapses to the floor. There's blood everywhere and no sound coming from her husband's mouth. What has she done? Desperately, she tries anything to revive him. She breathes into his mouth, hits her hands hard against his chest, takes towels to his skin to stop the bleeding, but nothing works. Horrified at her actions, she hugs the dead body of her husband and cries into his bloody clothes. Patricia waits nine hours before calling an ambulance. She's in too much shock at what she's done. She refuses to believe she's killed him. Surely he's just sleeping. He survived death once before. Maybe he'll do it again this time. She mops up blood on the floor and thinks of what to do. If he's dead, then she'll go to prison for murder. The thought fills her with dread. By 4.30 a.m., she decides it's time to call an ambulance. He went a bit loony tonight and attacked me she tells the police, and I attacked him and there's blood everywhere. I don't think he's breathing. Although paramedics quickly arrive at the Wakeford's house and try their best to revive Tony, he's declared dead within minutes. Patricia is arrested for the murder of her husband. It's the 10th of June, 2011. Over the next two grueling weeks, the events of September the 3rd would be debated at the Old Bailey in London. Patricia Wakeford is on trial for the murder of her husband. She's pleading innocent to murder and guilty of manslaughter. When Patricia's invited to take the stand, all she can manage to do is confirm her identity as the wife of Tony Wakeford. Her pain is still too raw to cooperate any further. So she asks her lawyer to read out a letter she's written. Her letter details her own version of events from September 3rd. According to Patricia's writing, Tony violently attacked her and she retaliated purely out of self-defense. Use of the knife was necessary, her words insist, as Tony had such a strong grip on her and wouldn't let her free. She goes on to say that the fatal stab wound in Tony's chest was administered when he fell from his chair onto her knife. It was a scuffle that got out of hand, her letter implores. Perhaps in a couple where both were physically able, the situation would be believable. But the prosecutor doesn't trust Patricia's story for a second. As he takes the stand, he points out that Tony was a weak and frail man who struggled with the most basic movements. Using assessments from the Lime Grove Medical Center, which Tony occasionally visited for treatment and checkups, the prosecutor concludes that it would have been near impossible for him to have attacked his wife. His Parkinson's had progressed too far for him to have posed any real physical threat. And even if Tony had miraculously grabbed hold of his wife, 
she wouldn't have had any difficulty in prizing herself free from his weak grip. Patricia's lawyer is the next to speak. She explains that Tony's body doesn't look like that of a deliberate murder victim. Although there are extensive stab wounds covering his upper arms, hands, thighs, and legs, they're only one centimeter deep. Puncture wounds this shallow are often considered to be self-defense cuts. Her lawyer points out that the fatal blow administered to Tony was a stab wound to his heart. However, the wound itself was very shallow and is unlikely to have been intentional. The jury's left with a tragic irony that both Wakeford's hearts were broken. Tony broke Patricia's by confessing to the affair, and Patricia killed her husband with a fatal stab to his own heart. On the 24th of June, 2011, Patricia Wakeford is found not guilty of murder and sent to prison for 582 days for manslaughter. The judge is sympathetic to her case and rules that the killing was one of mercy and compassion. He declares that she was betrayed by the two people closest to her and cannot be punished any more than she has already been. Patricia, he believes, is not a violent woman and was driven to insane aggression by an unthinkable act of betrayal. As she's already spent 291 days in custody, the newly widowed 67-year-old is released. She's reunited with her daughter and granddaughter, perhaps hoping that the later years of her life will bring more joy than her marriage ever did. It's a bittersweet ending to a chapter of her life characterized by unhappiness, betrayal, and violence. Although Patricia gets to walk free, she'll never receive the love she always craved from her husband. Tony's preemptive deathbed confession sentenced him to a gruesome death and turned his wife into a killer. Crippled by the guilt of his own actions and desperate to die with a clear conscience, he mistakenly rushed into his confession. It was a fatal error that deprived the Wakefords of even the slightest chance at the happy ending Patricia once dreamed of. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. We meet Paul Branch, a longtime member of the pagan biker gang, a man who used violence as a way of life. Branch has served time for drugs, assault, even murder, but there's one final crime he confesses to having knowledge of before he loses his battle with cancer. It's linked to a missing teenager, Amy Billig, not seen since 1974. Amy's mom has scoured the country for decades looking for her daughter. The Pagans, along with a rival gang, the Outlaws, have long been suspected in Amy's disappearance. But is there any truth in Branch's words? Or is he just the latest in a long line of people to raise the Billig's hopes, only to dash them on the rocks? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Nicole Edmonds. Supervising editor, Kevin Pham. Sound design by Matias Torresole. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 